Welcome to the Excel Still More podcast. I am your host, Chris Emerson. I'm here to encourage you in your walk with God. Thank you for joining in. Today's podcast is sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John Cunningham is a friend of mine and a brother in Christ, and he can help you with financial decisions and future planning. He's been a big help to me and my family, and I commend him to you. You can reach him at 205-913-1720. I am so thankful you're here, so let's get started. Hey, welcome back, and thanks for listening in today. So I'm a little extra kind of anxious and excited about today's content because it's got a little risk and reward element to it. The risk is that I will not do a good job explaining to you what the gestalt effect is, in which case it will not make much sense to you, and even the two applications that I've packaged up to share just won't hit home. And there is definitely some risk of that, because this gestalt psychology is very old. It's at least 100 years old. It was developed by some guys who live on the other side of the planet. And it is largely the study of the way the brain interprets visual inputs. In fact, the argument is there are natural things that happen, subconscious, instantaneous things that happen as you observe different elements of the world around you. At some point, you can decide if you want to keep observing that thing or continue to think on it. But in those instant early stages, what happens is natural and oftentimes unavoidable. It's not about, in those first stages, whether you're a good person or a bad person. It's just the way that the brain has been designed to work. And if you choose to believe in what is sometimes called the Gestalt theory, it will have a direct effect on how you visually present yourself to the world. And on the viewing side, it might help you understand why you have certain instant impulses that you could not previously explain. Now, maybe I've already lost you, or maybe you are very clear on the challenge. If the theory and effect is related to visual things and how you interpret them, and yet this podcast is purely audio, I've got my work cut out for me. But how about this? Before we even dig in on it, there are two applications I want to make today, and one of them has to do with modesty. Recently at the Lindell Church, I did three lessons on the topic of modesty, And to be specific, I'm talking about modest versus immodest apparel. We talked to the guys as well as the girls, but as the series went on, we really started to focus in on trying to get women to understand the power of their bodies. I want mothers and daughters to understand the way that God made them and also the way that God made men. I encouraged fathers and husbands and brothers and boyfriends to own up to some of those truths about the way that a man's brain works and be an asset in helping the females in your life to understand why modesty is so incredibly important. It was maybe 10 years ago that someone gave Summer and me a great book. It's titled Secret Keeper, The Delicate Power of Modesty by Dana Gresh. It's a book primarily written to ladies to help them understand some things, She makes some great points. I preached them recently. You can probably find that at our YouTube channel. But she mentioned the allure of her body and how modesty is her power to possess it. The purpose of her body and how modesty is her power to preserve it. And of course, the goal of her heart. And modesty is your power to prove it. It's all very empowering and awesome. 
and it really helped me as a husband and a father to talk to my girls about how men need to control the way that they think, and there is no excuse for lust and pornography and immorality. But the undeniable truth is that the power of a woman's sexuality has affected the course of human history since nearly the beginning. I'll put a link to the book in the notes. It's really good. But I read it, again, maybe 10 years ago, and that is where I first heard of the Gestalt theory, which, again, was not about modesty or Christianity. It's just the study of the way that the brain interprets images. And that has sent me down a very interesting rabbit hole of understanding the principle better and seeing that the applications may even be wider than visual output and input, as I'll share at the end. Okay, so here we go. The word gestalt just means seeing things as a whole, as a full picture, instead of overanalyzing it or breaking it into a bunch of little pieces. And this translates into one basic thing you need to know about your mind. Objects will be perceived in their simplest form. We can overanalyze things later. We can break it down into little segments. We can try to figure out the deeper meaning But that is not typically the way your brain works, not on the fly and not at first. Your brain's got a lot of stuff to do. So when it sees something, it interprets it as simply and commonly as it can based on whatever previous inputs it's been given and then makes decisions from there. Here's a very common example. Have you ever seen the Olympic rings? When you see those, do you think, that's five rings interlocked at certain places of five different colors? And I noticed there are actually little gaps there where some of the circles aren't completed so that other circles can overlap. You don't do any of that. You just take that image in, see it as one piece, and think to yourself, I guess I'll be watching curling for 10 straight days. And I think that's going to be important on the application side. Sometimes we say, well, I'm wearing this outfit. If people knew me better, they would know that it doesn't mean this or it does mean that. If people would stop and look at the pieces here, it's not exactly what they think that it is. Maybe I'll use a church example so it's not all about the ladies. Here's a guy serving on the Lord's table with a graphic t-shirt on. And he's like, if you knew me better, you'd know that's not a big deal. And if you would take the time to zoom in a little bit, you'd see that that's not a little devil on my shirt. It's actually an angel with really pointy ears. That was a purely fictitious example, but it illustrates what I'm saying. You're just in an environment and you see some clothing, you process it as one whole thing, it sends some signal to you, positive or negative, and then you have to decide what to do with that afterwards. I know there's always more to the story, a clearer picture to be grasped. But when it comes to things like clothing, or really the way you portray yourself in any capacity, you often don't get that chance. And no, you cannot control what everyone thinks, And you don't have to answer to everyone for whatever you do, and people sometimes hold standards that are not purely biblical. But whether it be your clothing or places you choose to go, or ultimately today, I want to actually talk to you about the words that you say, you are trying to be a reflection of Jesus, and a big part of that is owning your impression. Because whether it's something that they see or hear, God built their brain to naturally accept it on its most basic and straightforward level, at least, again, initially. Now, I really want you to get this idea that it is naturally in the brain's desire to kind of build a complete picture and move along. So let me quickly walk you through some of the basic tenets of the Gestalt effect. 
There are a few we won't focus on today, like similarity, proximity, and symmetry, where pieces look alike or they're close together or they match, and it all just kind of fits together naturally and immediately to form a picture or idea. But there's something more crucial I want you to consider, and it's called continuation, where you see the beginnings of a line or a curve, and your eye naturally completes that line or follows that curve. Like if on the street there are dotted lines showing a turn to the right. They only have to go about halfway. They can stop after that. You will naturally follow that curve all the way around the corner. In terms of modesty, that is a very big deal. It's why we use terms like dressing suggestively. We talked in the modesty sermons about covering certain parts of the body. Parts of the body that are associated with modesty or privacy or sexuality to reveal even smaller portions of those areas, certain curves, for instance, or lines, invites the viewer to follow those curves and those lines. Again, initially at least, there is a natural inclination of the mind that will pursue the direction of that line. For instance, if someone's skirt is short, or those curves, if someone is wearing something of a lower cut. And I really hope you understand, this is not just about the women wearing things that are longer or that cover more. On the one hand, it is about getting them to understand that if you show some, the mind will pursue more. But it is also for men, in this case in particular, to understand what your mind instantly wants to do. It may reveal why you initially were drawn in a direction, but it should immediately warn you of what will happen next if you do not take control. This gestalt effect has a few other elements to it, but one more I want you to note is called closure. If I showed you a picture of a triangle, but it was missing large sections, you would still see a completed triangle. The mind will attempt to fill in missing details. Now, you won't see a triangle if I give you a blank sheet of paper with nothing to work with, but if I give you enough information, your mind can use that and do the rest. In fact, that's a part of point one, that objects will perceive things in their simplest form. Your mind wants to fill in what's missing, complete the picture, and then make a decision. From a modesty standpoint, this is why men need to understand that pornography with nudity is clearly sinful. But spending time viewing or being with people who dress in a way that gives you quite a bit of the picture will put you in a very difficult mental place you will be fighting the natural inclinations of the brain. To kind of wrap up the modesty part of this, I believe this is why God wants women and men to dress properly, to make a claim to godliness. When someone looks at me in the way that I dress or portray myself, what is the simple, full picture that they immediately form? Based on what is shown to them, what lines will they finish, curves will they follow, or blanks will they fill in? And this is why, for me, as a husband and father, I want the ladies in my life to dress in a way that covers certain portions of their bodies that is not suggestive or revealing or tightly form-fitting. That is not consistent with the message they want to send with their life. And of course, how we dress or present ourselves is supposed to be the goal of our heart on display. Maybe we say, look, there's a lot more going on under the surface. I'm a very complex person. And while I'm sure that is true, you and I are being viewed in a very simple and straightforward way. And as far as that goes with the young ladies in my family, 
I want them to do their best to not even give out partial information to a complete picture that does not belong to just anyone. Of course, if this is something you're sharing with your family, this can lead to some great conversation about marriage and God's beautiful intent for you to share your body, partial and complete, with just one other person. So those are the basics of the Gestalt effect and its most, I think, obvious application in modesty and discretion. Objects will be perceived in their simplest form. Humans naturally follow lines and curves, and the mind will attempt to fill in missing details. So just in brief recap, little bits of information lead to large amounts of interpretation. Short lines lead to longer paths. Partial pieces lead to complete pictures. And in ways that can be a blessing or a curse, each of us needs to take ownership of the impressions that we give. So hang with me here in these last few minutes. Is it possible that what is true of our clothing and the visuals that we share is also true of our speech, our language, and the messages we convey? And I want to talk about this in a broader sense. I'm not still talking about immorality. I mean, I guess we could talk about jokes and suggestive language that isn't all-out filthy, doesn't finish the sentence, but it might as well have. You've led the hearer to naturally go in a certain direction, and in that sense need to take some responsibility for the pathway you created. Now that I say that, I guess we could use the rest of the episode talking about, again, suggestive or somewhat impure wording and language, questionable jokes, euphemisms, targeted sarcasm, You can always come back and say, well, I didn't say it. Or if you knew me better, you'd know that I didn't mean it. Or maybe, like with our clothing, we should take a little more care in our speech. Partial messages are perceived as complete messages. What exactly are you verbally putting out there in your home, in your marriage, among your neighbors, with your brethren? What information are you sending And if they drew the simplest conclusion from what they just heard, and they followed the line of thought that you laid out to its natural conclusion, and filled in the details that you failed to provide, which again is all a very natural, almost subconscious activity, how did your chosen words affect them? And are you ready to take some responsibility for that and some care in it? So let's finish up talking about that a bit more generically. Just every conversation that you have, what you contribute to someone else's line of thought or emotions or conclusions. And look, you might be thinking, hey, I can't control everything everyone thinks about what I say. And that's certainly true. No more than a woman can control everything that a man chooses to think when he looks at her. However, gestalt is still in effect. You are a dominant factor in the lives of other people. You have power and influence and your words are a daily and consistent part of that. I love the challenge the Bible gives in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. I don't even know how many times I've read that verse and thought about it, but something that I just noticed today was it didn't say words, It said no unwholesome word. It's adding weight to even one word. It's assigning significance to any word. The truth is, based on our theory today and, well, being married for 25 years, one word spoken can be a paragraph 
in the ear of the hearer. A small amount of tone can convey a large amount of emotion. A couple of things I remember from my youth is I was a little edgy as a teenager. I didn't use foul language or talk about dirty things, but I liked the innuendos, the euphemisms. And I could always say to the parent or the preacher, I didn't say that. I can't help if that's what they got out of what I was saying. Hey, that's just their dirty mind. That was a bucket load of foolishness. You put enough pieces of the triangle on the table, and everyone is going to see a triangle. So I got rid of a lot of that in my youth, but there was one thing that held on. I got married young, 18, and unfortunately, in the early years of my marriage, I was very sarcastic. I thought that short quips and quick jabs and funny words and little ideas, quick retorts, I thought they were harmless ways of showing the world how smart I was. They proved that I could think quickly on my feet and give a retort to anything that was said. Well, my wife did a fair bit of crying in those first few years because what looked like tiny little pokes for me had a much fuller and more painful impact on her. I tell people, I was like 25 years old, I dug a big hole in the backyard, I buried all my sarcasm in it, and I left an unmarked grave. My point to you is this, whether it's something that is a little sketchy, or a little hurtful, or a little suggestive, something that just barely starts a fight, or reveals just the tiniest amount of being uncompassionate, the hearer will take that for what it is. They will link it together with all of the other things that you say or usually say or often mean. They will start down the path your statement suggests and keep following it long after you've stopped speaking. They will fill in the blanks of what you are suggesting, whether you are actually suggesting it or not. God built their brain to formulate a conclusion and then act upon it. Yes, I should do an episode on not being so quick to draw conclusions. And people need to give you more of the benefit of the doubt when you say things. But I guess you know by now that I have never recorded a single episode that was for someone else. It was always for you and me. And it's a lot like modesty. We warn the men to look away and not to lust. But we also warn the women that there is a natural tendency in men, wherein her choices, which seem insignificant to her, may be very significant for him. And that's exactly what I need to know about my words. And hey, on the positive side, I may say good things that lead to great and encouraging conclusions. And I think from that and Ephesians 4, that's the thought I'm taking with me today. I think I'll contribute things that are kind and needful and constructive, accepting ownership of all of my impressions and taking advantage of the Gestalt effect. Thank you so much for joining in today. If you enjoyed this program, consider sharing it with your family and your friends. And if you're just in search of deeper Bible study or you want to share the message of Jesus with the children in your life, remember to go to creationtorevelation.com. This wonderful company run by Christians provides beautiful illustrations of scripture from beginning to end, putting the spotlight on Jesus. And remember this, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, excel still more.